0: I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. How are you all doing? I hope you're doing very well. I hope you're surviving this winter, wherever you are. You might be abroad listening to this. You might be not in the UK. We've got listeners from all over the world. So hello to everyone all over the world. And wherever your winter is, If that means you're actually having a summer, then I hope it's good. Oh, I love my guest today. She's just so much fun. She's a right old laugh, actually. (laughs) I don't know why even just thinking about her puts a big smile on my face. And as with quite a few guests on here, I've got to know her better since I spoke to her, actually. So I speak to Carolyn Garrett this week, and she's the physical trainer at Maggie's. I first came across her... In the summer, this was like pre-surgery. I think I went to a class, an exercise class, in like May or June time. And I've said it before, I kind of rocked up thinking, oh, this isn't going to be really much for me. You know, I'm used to going to the gym and lifting weights and doing real cardio. and, And I was having heart problems at the time, actually. I remember, like, we hadn't kind of quite balanced things out. And I think she interpreted the heart issue I had as the same heart problem that can cause a very sudden heart attack. And it wasn't the same issue as that. She only actually told me that afterwards. So I think she was extremely cautious and, you know, quite right, just like making sure that I was going to be okay. And we ended up sitting on chairs doing the exercises. There were two other ladies in that group and, um, I think, to be honest, it was like just as active as if we hadn't been on the chairs. I was really amazed and surprised at how impactful exercising on a chair could be. And she was just so jolly and so friendly and made me feel so included. And I can see why... She got herself the job at Maggie's in the way that she did, but I'm gonna let her explain how all of that happened. Yeah, you can decide for yourselves. So here's my interview with Carolyn Garrett, the physical trainer of Maggie's and the writer of the brilliant book, Get Your Oomph Back, a guide to exercise after a cancer diagnosis. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very honoured. Oh, no, it's great to have you because I'm really trying to get guests who have got all different perspectives and have been impacted or work with people with cancer or, you know, all those different areas. So you trained in public health and health promotion.
1: So I've got a master's in public health and health promotion. I worked in the NHS for 20 years, never clinically. I was a manager. I used to run... um, cancer services and breast screening services. A totally accidental career. Started off as an office person and just worked up a little bit to the point that I was managing. I was a director of something called a cancer network, which was like a strategic body. I didn't like it, to be truthful. I think a lot of people find themselves in jobs where it's just kind of developed, but The work was important, but it didn't really fit me. It was very administrative, very managerial. That's sorry, um, but that
0: sounds so different
1: (laughs) to where you are now. Sorry to interrupt, (laughs) but yeah, go on. It's fine because it it is part of the story. And certainly I've had plenty of conversations with people about the second career. And sometimes people ask me to talk because of this second career thing. So, And actually I was introduced to Maggie's through my old job because we had So I was running an organisation that was a kind of strategic overseer of all the different aspects of cancer care. And I know it seems unlikely because I'm as daft as a brush. Honestly, it was a really different daily existence for me. But So we did stuff around diagnosis, we did stuff around waiting times, access to drugs, things like that. And we used to run projects about what was survivorship. And I know lots of people don't like the term survivor, and I get that. But for what, certainly within the field, was referred to as survivorship. And that is where my interest in exercise came from. Just because seeing the, at the time, a very early evidence base, but the emerging evidence around cancer and exercise. And it had always been known, and certainly when I did my master's, I knew all about the preventative impact of exercise. Like nutrition, like not smoking, like alcohol in terms of primary prevention of cancer. But what I learned through my job and through emerging knowledge was about the impact of exercise after you've had a cancer diagnosis. And the evidence is fascinating and growing and has grown exponentially. I've been doing this job now for nearly 10 years. Because I'm that old, Katie. <laughs> You're nearly old enough to be in
0: the third university or whatever it's
1: called. What's oh, the, the U3A, University of the Third Age. That's if any it, of listeners haven't come, come across H. it, it's amazing. Fantastic <laughs> we organisation. We talked about that on the Heath the other day. So <laughs> hang on, this is
0: really interesting. I didn't know any of this. So from basically from the data that you were gathering in your day job, it struck you that exercise was really important. Yeah. in how people deal with the diagnosis and assume with being on treatment, that you completely yeah. shifted your career because of that.
1: Yeah, and I, mean, I knew I was in the wrong job. So as I say, I've often spoken to people about career change because I wanted one, I needed one. I'd come to a point where I wanted to do something different. It just really interested me and it felt like trite. It felt like there was something there that I could do that would be very useful in a very direct way. And one of the reasons I didn't like my old job was because it felt too removed. Although it was important and helpful in the big picture, it wasn't direct. You know, I didn't get to see a dozen people climb up Parliament Hill on a Monday morning and smile, you and I did on Monday morning. So it's really different feedback. So I get more out of it, but as well as that, it just felt like something that was socially far more useful. So I went up to the YMCA. I just went and did a really standard... Gym instructor course, which is entry level into the fitness industry. And I did that while I was still working. I did that in weekends and evenings. And I just loved it. I loved the study. So it just, it was doing no things fall into place.
0: Before? Were you into,
1: yeah, I was okay. never a gym bunny. I was never been, you know, some kind of skinny biddy. <laughs> I was always sporty as a kid. And I've run all my I Marathons, mind. I might add. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, slowly but done. And the idea of doing something that would be active, you know, I was never going to be into elite sports, but something that would be active and outdoors or predominantly outdoors. Again, in terms of what I wanted from a second career, it just, it fitted, Katie, it just all gelled, you know. So
0: why in the first place were you working in
1: the cancer world? Was there any reason? Originally pure chance in my twenties, I took on a maternity leave cover, having done some temping I lived in Cornwall the job situation was scarce I took on a bulk standard office job that happened to be in a mammography department that happened to be in a hospital and it just went from there okay pure chance but you know an interesting field without a shadow of a doubt and certainly working early on in the cancer screening programs again it was doing something very useful Mm. while they were still being set up and they're still useful stay of course but, uh, yeah, much of it without chance,
0: right? Okay, so let's talk about that then. What are the benefits? Why is it important on lots of different levels for lots of different reasons? I guess what's interesting for listeners would be to understand the preventative, which you just mentioned, but also going more into, yeah, post diagnosis.
1: Yeah, so we have to be careful about using the word prevention, and certainly. Because, you know, there's no guarantees. And certainly I know we'll talk about my story later on, but certainly people that are very fit get diagnosed with cancer. I'm Just one like of people them. that are not very yeah, fit, precisely. Course. What we know about the relationship between exercise and cancer is certainly that if you are very active, you are less likely to develop cancer in the first place. But where my absolute fascination comes in is that regardless of what happened before, If you are able to be active after a cancer diagnosis, simply your risk of it coming back is quite significantly reduced. Most of the evidence is around the common cancers. What we know about the more common cancers is certainly in breast, prostate and bowel cancer. If you are able to be active after a cancer diagnosis, the risk of it coming back is reduced by up to 40%. 4-0, which is huge. And massive. there are drugs that don't perform to that level. So that's always the big picture for people with secondary cancer, with advanced cancer, what is also known is that it's not curable, you know, but you can live with cancer for a long time. And what we know about, again, if you're able to be active with secondary cancer is that the exercise can help slow down disease progression. So you may well live longer with it. And then what we get to is how you actually feel when you've actually had cancer or you're actually having treatment. And you look at all of the commonly experienced side effects. I think you suffered with fatigue quite significantly, didn't you? Yeah, still do.
0: I'm still on the treatment and I get, yeah, a lot of fatigue with it.
1: Shall we tell you a reason? readers that I've fessed up to just literally yeah. finished having an afternoon nap.
0: I and th- I, I <laughs> like cheered you for
1: It's It's
0: exhausting. Whether you've got cancer or not, have a
1: nap in the afternoon if you can. <laughs> totally. So 95% of people who've had a cancer diagnosis experience fatigue. They don't all call it fatigue. doesn't necessarily... It can last for a period of weeks or months or years, depending on all sorts of different circumstances. But if you're able to be active, what has been shown is that exercise on its own can help reduce the fatigue, uh, can help manage the fatigue. Again, they, there was a study that compared just exercise with just the best anti fatigue drug, and cancer uh, exercise outperformed the drug. It's incredible. That's amazing. So, why oh, is that? It's then, really Carol, impactful? Why
0: is exercise so? what's it doing that's making these amazing impacts? It's
1: loads of different things, uh, lots of different pieces of a jigsaw. It's not just one magic bullet. It's helping with blood flow. So it's helping, you know, kind of stimulate healing. It's helping develop and re-strengthen our heart and lungs. It's going to help us with day-to-day things, with recovering strength. And, you know, recovering strength is partly about getting up the stairs and getting in and out of chairs. But it is going to enable us to move more similarly to before diagnosis so just getting around is becomes less tiring mm. it stimulates appetite it can stimulate sleep you can use exercise to rebuild muscle and you're going to ask me about cells and microscopes and stuff but I can't remember fully but what we do know <laughs> and it's on that level is that if we have plenty of muscle on our frame that has been shown specifically to help reduce fatigue and what happens to loads of people during cancer treatment some gain weight some lose weight but what very frequently happens is that we lose strength and that can be a perception of strength as i say getting out of a chair or getting upstairs but what we lose is we lose muscle and literally you lose muscle so many people go through cancer treatment and they find that their limbs are skinnier and their torso is rounder. And that's because there's more fat on the tummy. And because during treatment, our body will, if it can, might metabolize our own muscle. So we lose it. If only weight loss only involved body fat, that would be highly convenient, but alas, it doesn't. And if we're losing weight and not exercising, we lose our muscle. And as I saying that's partly why it can feel Things can feel so difficult, but it's also because you literally have less oomph. Oomph. Oh, good one. (laughs) Very on brand. I know. Check me out. I've got that in. (laughs) You have less strength. It's cyclical. You know, it feeds itself.
0: It's interesting what you say about the more you move, the less fatigue Mm. you have, because I'm now just over three months since surgery, major surgery I had, and you know, knackered all the time, but feel like I know I want to move my body. I know I want to get out. I know I want to do more, feeling more confident, more brave with the new body that I've got. And it definitely has helped doing the Nordic walking with you, doing the yoga. I do yoga for cancer with Vicky Fox and kind of building myself up to just getting a bit more cardio going. And it definitely helps with the tiredness. But I think things like the Nordic walking, you know getting out with other people or on your own sometimes you just want to be on your own being in nature all of those things do so it's not there's obviously physical benefits to it but it's also the mental
1: stuff isn't it carolyn and that's a huge
0: part of exercise
1: yeah and the link between your mood and your emotional state and your mental state and exercise is well proven so of the common side effects, Uh, as I say, fatigue is the biggie, but anxiety and depression is extremely common as a specific result of cancer treatment. And again, getting into the fresh air, there's a term green exercise, and the idea is exercising in nature just has the potential to give a little bit more impact in terms of our mood. One of the reasons why my job is just the most rewarding is because people's mood improves as we're doing it.
0: Oh wonderful. it's gorgeous. That's lovely. Uh, so they people... probably rock up and you're measuring the height of the sticks and you're helping with the gloves and they're a bit moody <laughs> and by the end of it they're like, yay!
1: People are one of the things that has been lovely is I work at Maggie's at West London as well. And I remember them saying they always liked it when the Nordic walkers came back because there's just a nice buzz and there's a <sighs> and there's like a happy sigh. And I you see that a lot. Oh, um lovely. so instantaneously some people hate exercise i will acknowledge that and then it's a matter there's an art in finding how we can move in a way that feels rewarding to us but once we get to do something that we can be comfortable with and enjoy and that challenges is enough it's just it does all these things you know the endorphins that you get either gently on something like a nordic walk or a big bash of them if you do something a little bit more um, extreme huge mood
0: boost yeah and you say that in your book which we will come on to you say do something you enjoy and I've always said that with exercise I always think if you're forcing yourself to the gym why are you doing it you know let's talk about Maggie's how did they find you did you find them brilliant organization they are a charity that I support you can go to my fundraising page through my website talkingwithcancer.com and if you like this and you like the podcast please donate anything you can sorry
1: just threw that in there over to you no do it because again I am without sounding really cliched, it's a privilege to work for Maggie's. I've got to say, I love them as an organisation. I knew Maggie's when I was in my old job. We used to have meetings at the Maggie's West London Centre. So we used to have what would be called expert patients that would sit in meetings with NHS managers and clinicians and go, we don't like that. Brilliant. <laughs> Could you sort out the car parking, please? <laughs> you know, and talk about the things that mattered to patients from their perspective so I used to go to Maggie's for that and actually when I was thinking of this career change I remember talking to the centre head at the time at Maggie's West London a lady called Bernie this was ages ago Katie before being a cancer exercise specialist was a particular thing I remember going Bernie I've got this idea that I'd be like like a personal trainer or almost like a PE teacher but for cancer and she was like do it (laughs) she was really enthusiastic there's a few other ex-colleagues that were really cool and just said yeah because that you know again they understood the evidence base they understood what was coming in terms of the need for rehabilitation and the value of rehabilitation so the maggie's west london center has probably been open for 12 13 years and i was i remember going when it was first opened and they're just beautiful I love Maggie Centres because they're both beautiful, but they also do an amazing stuff. They're not white elephants. You know, they're amazing places. I always feel bad when I know that if there's a wide audience, because there are always people going, yeah, but we haven't got one. And that's a pity. I know there is a call that there should be one in every major cancer treating centre. In fact, in other places.
0: Keep donating and there will be. So did you approach (laughs) them for a job then off the back of that?
1: Yes. (laughs) I knew them already. So they knew what I was doing and I just kept some dialogue going. And then they needed somebody to stand in for something. And it was something as simple as that. They needed a stand-in for a physio who'd been doing a rehab class. And I said, oh, yes, please, I'd love to, of course. Since then, we've developed the exercise both at West London and the Roll Free. We started Nordic Walking. It was pure, um, what's the word that they use? pester power on my part oh, well <laughs> so done can we do an audit walking can we do an audit walking can we do an audit walking and uh so we started that <laughs> several years ago um, Amazing. and things have gradually developed what I like as well is that they allow me to teach strength training you came along to that as the first thing it has to be gentle but again strength training is terribly important and terribly useful if we can find a way of making it acceptable for people and not overwhelming so uh, I love that Maggie's let me teach strength as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's brilliant. We talked about Nordic walking on our walk and how we need to rebrand it for a younger generation. It's exhilarating and it's exhausting.
1: I mean, it really works your upper body as well. And it gives your brain a break. I love the fact it's so sociable. It's just a, a really pleasant thing to do. I know, um, and we're a real mixed bunch, aren't we, on the Monday? It's great. Yeah. <laughs> so let's
0: just talk about you, and your personal journey with all of this, because again, I had no idea that you yourself had had a cancer diagnosis. I still don't really know very
1: much about it. So if you don't mind sharing. I don't mind sharing at all. Because again, in terms of, it's not necessarily the most obvious trajectory, though I have come across several people who have been um, been personal trainers, had a cancer diagnosis and then gone into specialising and working in cancer which makes complete sense you bring your personal experience for me it was the other way around so I said so I've been doing this job for nearly a decade and worked in cancer for 20 years before that and I always knew statistically you know one in two and I always knew breast cancer one in eight and my mum had breast cancer, my dad had prostate cancer. So it's always been there in the background of my mind, but I imagined I'd been older. And then in the lockdown, start of lockdown, when we all had to get used to Zoom and working on screen, rather than being in it. So I, I love, I teach boxing, which again, post cancer. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> I've done boxing as
1: well. It's a great release, isn't it? It is. I've done Zoom sessions with a couple of clients who, if we were in a park, I'd hold up the pads and they'd wallop me with my consent. And rather than doing that, we'd been holding dumbbells and boxing against the screen. And it had just been a bit intense. And I thought I'd sprained my pectoral muscle. I had this kind of strange sensation on one of my chest muscles just didn't feel right. And it was a little breast cancer.
0: Wow. So how quickly did you go from feeling that sensation
1: to getting it checked, Carolyn? Almost instantly because the timing of my cancer journey was right at the very start of the pandemic. So when people weren't going to their GP, I know now cancer services, are bless them, they have worked with massive backlogs for months and months Mm -hmm. already. When I was diagnosed, it was the point that we were standing outside clapping the NHS. It was back then. And there were no waiting times or very, very few. So I didn't even see a GP. I rang a a central number because they didn't want you to come through the door. So I rang a central number and explained and they were like, no, straight off. And I think it was about five weeks. It was four or five weeks between me finding the lump and me being in a hospital bed, having a mastectomy.
0: That's a short period of time to get your head around any of that.
1: My goodness. Mm. It is, but it meant that it was intense, short, focused. I was really lucky. I didn't need chemo. So I got in and out in a much faster time, you know, relatively unscathed. I had a mastectomy. For some people, that is a massively loaded word. For me, it was fine. I've got to be honest, it wasn't devastating. It's just the surgery that I needed. Yeah it was done very well it was done very quickly but ever since I've been on hormone drugs and from them I can't remember words (laughs) dafter than I ever was but you know they should help prevent it coming back so um, right so you're on those drugs for the rest of your life are you no five to ten years it's it's normally to steer you right through menopause and a little way beyond Might get away with five years. It'll depend on where the science is at the time that we that I get to my five year anniversary.
0: Okay. What I know with the treatment that I'm on and how my cancer's being looked at, you know, I just feel like there's more drugs around the corner all the time. Like always, you know, I'll be able to take my drug for a period of time and it will stop working, and then I'm sure there'll be something else. It's exactly unbelievable. Exactly. You might not know any different. I mean, you don't know any different, but do you suspect that having worked in this field, having had personal experiences in your family and then having it yourself made you deal with it differently, better? It mm-hmm. sounds like you were quite matter of fact about it, perhaps, which is fine. However people deal with it is how they deal with it. Yeah. Maybe I'm putting
1: words into your mouth. You tell me how no, it No, no, you're not, Katie, I was quite matter of fact about it. I was very pragmatic about it. As I say, I had always assumed I'd have breast cancer, just because I know the stats. I was immensely lucky because, partly because I already worked in an area where I had knowledge and support specific to cancer. So the lovely team at Maggie's, even though, as I say, it was deep in pandemic and we weren't doing anything external, but they looked out for me. Of course they did. I knew all the terminology. I knew to anticipate certain things. Mm -hmm. I knew I had cancer before he even said it. I walked into the room to get my biopsy results. And there's a surgeon sitting there looking very pleasant. My surgeon was lovely. But sitting next to him was a breast care nurse and she had pamphlets, Katie. Yeah, I got a blue folder full of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I never looked at it.
1: But as soon as I saw the pamphlets, I was like, all right, I know where we're going here, you know. So, and I can be jovial about it now. Actually, I was quite relatively jovial about it at the time because it's one, it's a coping mechanism, isn't it? Probably. But I was articulate in, Mm -hmm. I understood the terminology, I could call on people to help me make decisions. I had the choice about a mastectomy and I had some lovely help from other professionals but actually i knew some professionals who had had cancer or who had also had breast cancer and there where the two you know where the venn diagram crosses was where i was particularly grateful for help i hung out with ca- people that have had cancer for years and my clients all <laughs> oh, my clients were lovely absolutely lovely and actually one of the people that i was boxing with with these flipping dumbbells which led me to find the cancer she'd had the same surgeon as me so you know the level of specific support i could call on was just lovely and i wish everybody could have access to the same support as me i was incredibly lucky on that level incredibly privileged actually
0: well i think there's a few things that strike me in what you've just said one is the importance of self-advocacy which i talk about loads on this podcast be yeah. on top of across in charge of your own medical journey, because there's yeah. going to be a few little slip ups, like there's low resource in, in the NHS. Yeah. So you've got to stay yeah. on top of it. And don't feel like you're being demanding. Just that's really important. But also, like, there is a lot of support, whether you know that or not, in your case, you knew it, it was your world. Mm-hmm. But again, people listening should know there's a lot of support, not just organisations like true. Maggie's, Macmillan, but there's Facebook groups, that's a become quite a big Mm. important resource for me and there's things like your lovely book (laughs) there are there's lots of great sort of handbooks and books and youtube and pod there's a whole community there's loads
1: of it and I think it's
0: really important and the other thing before we come on to the book is I don't think people should feel guilty I'm not suggesting you do but I do sometimes about being jovial about their cancer Mm. diagnosis or being matter-of-fact about it or just, you know, there's a real... uh, Of course, I talk about PR and branding a lot in my everyday life, but, like, you know, there's a kind of an idea of what cancer should be like or Mm. should look like or should feel like. And if it doesn't, you feel a bit guilty about that. And I don't think you should. It comes in many different shapes and sizes and forms and realities. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. And yeah. And I think that's that's just really important. I agree. I think it's important to um really acknowledge the scope of cancer because I know you know I can look at somebody and I look fit and I look strong, and I am, and I'm still, I believe, on the younger end of cancer patient. And my prognosis is very good. And one of the things that does aggrieve me i think there should be much more focus on people with secondary cancer i think they get a bum deal i think they don't get enough uh, support i think they don't get enough information and i think they get pigeonholed out mm. and so one of the things that i'm always very pleased is to have people that, whose cancer was at all stages i like to see that they are getting access fair access to support stuff i know they don't get fair access to drug trials so one of my uh, drums that I will bang is about metastatic specific I'm very aware of metastatic breast cancer it's the killer and it doesn't get mentioned and I'm just aware I heard a term cancer athlete and the idea is that people are very fit spurred on by the fact that they had cancer and that's really valuable but it's just being aware that you know we come, we we are two members of an exceptionally broad club that many people don't make it out of. And without bringing the tone right down, you know, as I said, the people that I, I was one of the lucky ones uh, for loads of different reasons. And it's just to acknowledge that there still is luck. <laughs> there still yeah. is luck in all that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's really important to know because I think the other thing is, you know there's lots of sort of terminology that's used isn't there and you can kind of come out of doctor's appointments and oncology appointments and think oh you know if they're saying this is how it looks and oh you know but actually Mm. you just like we said before you just don't know treatment's changing all the time research is changing all the time you've got such a lovely book get your oomph back a guide to (laughs) exercise after a cancer diagnosis which I picked up from Maggie's bookshelf, but you can, of course, buy it from bookstores, Amazon, probably everywhere and anywhere. And it's such a brilliant, A, it's a brilliant idea. B, it's a brilliant guide. There's lots of lovely pictures of you um, (laughs) showing examples of how to do exercise. Tell me how this book came about.
1: The book came about as a direct result of Maggie's you know. I take part in one of their courses called Where Now and it's a six or eight week course for people who have finished treatment and I've been doing that for several years. In fact that was the first thing that Maggie's asked me to do with them and people would ask me for a sheet from the workout that we did or a sheet from the talk and so I wrote it up and I do some talks for I regularly talk for breast cancer now and again people would say can you bring a handout?" I'm so old school it would normally be on paper and uh, (laughs) back when I was at uni talking about the master's by the way the MSc the public health degree was in my late 30s it wasn't when I was a a young'un and one of the things that came out of that was that I didn't have the academic rigor to do a PhD which was agreed that's fine (laughs) I wasn't insulted so I remember my supervisor saying that they thought I wrote in a way that was very readable mm. and so she got me to think about an area of writing that I didn't even know the term which she called health journalism and she said she thought she could me, she could imagine me writing about stuff that I was experiencing and it just stuck with me that it, uh, I always enjoyed writing so the little handouts became an idea that I might write a book. And that was years ago. It took me an age to actually write the blumming thing to the point that I also turned it into a blog. So I could make it into smaller chunks. And people would say, have you written a blog post lately, Carolyn? And it helped me to be accountable to myself because I usually hadn't because I'd intended to. But yeah, <laughs> making time. <laughs> and then, then the pandemic struck, didn't it? I was a good halfway through probably by then through the book or through what I thought the book would be, I thought I would use this time off to write my book. And instead I used the time off to have breast cancer Mm. and then, but I was still working on the book and I, I wanted to rewrite some of it because my perspective changed and my voice changed. I moved the book to be talking about us rather than them. And I just loved it. I really, really enjoyed the process. Yeah, yeah my oh, well, publishers wonderful. have said I can write a second book which is I was going to ask really you that. really yeah but the problem is flipping tamoxifen is robbing me of my ability to concentrate and I find it very it's one of the few impacts for me of cancer treatment has been a cloudy brain oh, and yeah. I can't mentally multitask like I hmm. used to I am much less able to concentrate and if that's a consequence then i can i can deal with that uh there's no rush but i would love to write a second book what whenever. would the second one be then well i've thought about several things i don't think many men have bought my book a lot of it is personal experience and also my experience as a so when i'm not working for maggie's and charities i work as a personal trainer so one-to-one not exclusively through the years but predominantly with people who've had cancer and most of my clients have been women mm. and I have trained men, but not so many of them. I think you have to frame things differently to engage a lot of men. And I think the book would probably read as a very female focused one. So a mate termed it my man book. <laughs> <laughs> I may well write a man book. <laughs> mm. yeah. Because again, it's a, I'm probably, you know, I was talked about how much support I had. I'm probably really typical. I'm educated and white I've had I live in a city I've had breast cancer I'm the kind of demographic that can already access loads of help and loads of support and loads of information and so I'd be interested in taking my wish to be helpful I'd take it in a different direction from any of those demographics yeah. I think I think I'd rather diversify
0: those. I think it's a good idea I mean I've talked as well on this podcast about why my listeners are predominantly female you know mm. and is that because men are kind of if you fear something you're sort of afraid to go in to it are they more fearful of health and, and illness i don't know if that's why we again we don't know why you might have a bit so more what, in term,
1: well in terms of they, they present later often so in terms of actually going to the doctor with symptoms that's been worrying them Well, I couldn't quote your statistic Katie, but from what I understand, men, particularly middle-aged and older men are less likely to go to their GP. They're less likely to do a bowel screening kit. They are understandably reluctant to go and get their PSA levels checked because it's an intrusive exam. I think as women, we will go through certainly beyond puberty and early adulthood we're more likely to be used to the idea of gynaecological stuff going on and things around reproduction that men experience much less. Mm. Same around pregnancy. So I think men just have a really different relationship with healthcare often, Mm. particularly around looking for something that may well bubble under for a long time and then just need you to acknowledge a a symptom. And then once you are, as I say, particularly if you think of bowel and prostate cancer, it's a difficult thing, I think, to say to yourself, I'm going to go to the doctor and I know what they're going to do. And to walk through that door, it's tricky.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a really smart response to what was previously Claire and my's banter going, I don't know, men are just scared, aren't they? They just don't want to listen to the podcast. They're scared. But actually, there is a cultural,
1: societal reason for it. There's also the, you know, very cliched, very stereotyping, but there's also the hunter gatherer thing actually thinking more about men that are of working age, they won't take time off work, especially if they can't afford it, if they're the breadwinner, if they're aware that there's a lot on their shoulders. And as I say, I'm being really stereotypical because of course women work. They might not get paid as much, but of course we do. <laughs> Again, there has been a view that if you are a breadwinner, your willingness to go to the GP with something that might be big and that won't just need a course of antibiotics, that can be you just you put it off.
0: Yeah. Well, I've got two men coming on this. Have oh, you? Yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> One I met through a Facebook group who's got the same mutating gene as me. And he's oh, been okay. on targeted treatment for 10 years for that. He's in his 60s and there's a younger guy in his 30s with thyroid cancer. Because oh, I thought okay. it would be interesting to find out that stuff, you mm. know. It's been so lovely speaking to you. It's been really, really great. (laughs) And I'll say it again, like this book is such a good idea and a great guide and really accessible. And it's brilliant for anyone with cancer or if you know anyone with cancer or dare
1: I say it, without cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there are lots of conditions that are helped by rehabilitation. I mean, that book is very cancer specific. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Get your imp
0: back. I'm gonna have my nap now. You've already had yours. I don't blame you
1: at all. Happy <laughs> napping, Katie. <laughs> and I'll see you on the Heath soon for that Nordic. Oh, didn't. thank you for inviting me on. It's been oh. lovely chatting. Oh, it's been lovely having you. All right, Anovi. Happy Take sleeping. Care. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. Take care.
0: Wasn't that great? That was some really like I learned a lot from that chat with Carolyn actually. I found Particularly insightful, her knowledge around men and how men approach their health, not because, of I said before on here, or they're just really scared, but because of actual cultural reality, which is that they're not really encouraged to think about their health from a young age like women are. They're not really told about their health like women are through puberty and beyond. I hope that's changing. I hope for the younger generation that is changing. But it was just, I hadn't thought about it like that before. So I think, you know, she talked about bringing out another book targeted at men, which I think is a brilliant idea. But I'll mention her book again. So it's Carolyn Garrett, G-A-R-R-I-T-T. She has written a book called Get Your Oomph Back, and that is a great Christmas gift, by the way, if you are looking to buy a present for someone you know with cancer. And it came about in such a great way, you know, which is, I think when these things come about in a kind of organic, real way, there's something just even that more authentic about it about a book like that similarly with um vicky fox's yoga for cancer so i would kind of say those are two really great books actually if you're looking to buy a christmas gift for anybody if you want to buy yourself a little treat buy them both yeah i think the other point carolyn made was about the fact that there isn't a maggie's everywhere and i talk about maggie's quite a lot and when she mentioned that i thought oh yeah Again, like I've said, I've got listeners all over the world and there isn't a Maggie's in all those places. I think, like, there could be something else and I really recommend that you try to find out what that might be. I think take your time. Don't force it if you don't feel ready. I definitely wasn't ready in the early days. I was almost anti-becoming part of a cancer community and people were suggesting lots of different options for me but I didn't identify as someone in that community. It just was not where I saw myself. And I think that's because I had to sit with my cancer and come to terms with it in my own time and in my own way and in my own surroundings. And now I feel nothing strange at all about walking into a room full of other cancer patients and just having a chat having a laugh, or sharing what I'm feeling, you know. I think there is definitely something about being with other people with cancer where you just get each other. You just do, and it's quite comforting, actually. It really is. So on that note, I met with Carly Musa, who I interviewed on the podcast in the episode Influencer, We talked on the podcast, which was great. We've had a little bit of back and forth on social media. And then before she went on a trek, she went on a trek with Copperfield to the Sahara. We said, wouldn't it be great to meet up? And we met up today. And it was just really, the time just flew. We walked around the park and chatted for an hour and a half. And at the end of it, I kind of looked at my phone and I couldn't believe it. It felt like 20 minutes, but... I think like engaging with her and sharing stuff, just very naturally talking about our cancer experience and everything that comes with that. It just, I don't know, it really helped me today actually. It was really, really what I needed. Not because I felt particularly emotional. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. I wasn't really feeling very much about the cancer. I didn't really know what I was feeling. I don't know, just having a chat about everyday stuff, but with someone who's been through it. I found that incredibly, yeah, like I said, incredibly comforting and reassuring. I think very reassuring. We talked about all the different organizations that are out there. And, you know, some of them ask for specific types of cancer. And that can be quite hard if you don't have that type of cancer. But you perhaps can see that an organization could offer a lot to you. And there are loads of different organizations out there for lots of different types of of cancer. And I think, you know, one thing that interests me as well is the idea of rare cancer and how I have a rare cancer. You know, I have hobnail. That is a rare type of thyroid cancer. One in five people get diagnosed with a rare type of cancer. So where do we all go? Like, that's also interesting. You know, there, are, there is a rare cancer organisation out there, actually. But when I kind of looked to join them, they didn't list Hobnail as one of the cancers that they cover. Now they do, because I flagged it with them. But that's something I'm kind of thinking about. I'm thinking about where do rare cancer people like me go? Does it even matter? Like, do I need to find other people with a rare type of cancer? or thyroid cancer, or the ROS1 gene. I've got all of those things. So I kind of fall into all those categories. For me, it's Maggie's because it's local to me and it's a great centre and they offer a lot of things. But for you, it could be something else and it could be somewhere else. I've talked about those Facebook groups and I think that they can be really helpful. And actually... I mentioned with Carolyn that on next week's episode, I'm splitting the episode next week into two. So um, I'm going to play half of it out on Tuesday and the other half of the episode out on Thursday. I am chatting to two men. One is a young guy called Adam who has thyroid cancer and who came to me just when I launched the podcast, he found me on Instagram. And we've been in touch ever since. So it's the first time we actually get to speak, which is amazing. And the other person I interview is a guy called David. He's in his sixties and he put a post up on the Ross One Facebook group about how he has been on his drug for 10 years now. And it's been a really successful treatment. And I wanted to interview two men because I wanted to hear, like, how is their experience of this? And you'll have to wait till next week, actually, to find out. But yeah, it's really great. Two really great interviews, but they kind of are part of this one episode. So I hope you'll tune in next week to listen to those. I'm not signing off here because, of course, I've got my listener voice note. And what's really great about this week's voice note is that it's from a friend. It's from someone I know called Pam. And before I'd really immersed myself into Maggie's, Pam was messaging me on Instagram. And she would always just send me a little note about the podcast, you know, what she thought, a little review, just a little her opinion on it. And I always was really grateful for that. And I didn't know a lot about Pam. Her Instagram just showed pictures of all her art. So I had a sense that she was an artist. And then obviously she had a picture on there of herself. And I think she might have mentioned in the messaging something about her eye and the tumour around her eye and how that was affecting her. One day I turned up for the Nordic walking and someone called her name and I looked up and I thought, that woman's familiar to me. And I said, Pam, it's me, Katie, from Talking With Cancer. We've been on Instagram together. And she was like, oh my God, hello, Katie. And so we bump into each other sometimes on the Nordic walk. And I said to her, look, you know, no pressure, but if you'd like to do me a voice note, I would really appreciate that. And, you know, if you want to share your story, it's a nice opportunity for you to do that. So Pam did just that. And then she emailed it to me. And it's really lovely of her to have done that, actually. And I want to play
2: that to you now. Hello, my name is Pam. And just over a year ago, I was diagnosed with lung cancer and had the bottom lobe of my left lung removed. At the time, they thought this was a very successful op. And I was very pleased that I thought I was going to recover quite lightly, or let's say I got off quite lightly. But just as I was out of the water, I found that I had not only a tiny cancer on my kidney, which was unusual, but a cancer behind my eye, which they had only ever seen twice at my hospital, twice in about 30 years at the eye clinic. So there I was with this very surprised eye cancer, which looked very nasty on the x-rays. And I thought it was a fairly routine eye infection. And suddenly the oncologist said to me, have you got anybody to be with you? Um, Six o'clock at night at the hospital when my husband was away, I felt the black cap had been put on her head. Anyway, a rare cancer it is. How I feel about this, I'm not sure. Maybe I get more attention though it doesn't seem to be happening at the moment, but also it widens the field of anxiety. So it also is problematic in that I've left, lost my sight in my left eye mainly, which is unfortunate when I'm a professional painter. So sods law. Just one more thing if I've got enough time. I managed to raise 2,000 pounds for cancer research through walking 100 miles through October, about three miles a day. They told me over the phone, raising 2,000 pounds buys 40,000 test tubes. I thought this was quite funny (laughs) and I was a little disappointed as I wanted something a little bit more heroic, but 40,000 test tubes probably does it. Okay, I'll wind up now.
0: You know, we can share stuff with people that we get to know and we become friends with, but there's always parts of that story we didn't hear, we never knew, we were never told. That's why I think, you know, I feel really grateful that I've, st- I've got this podcast, to be honest, because it's, you know, it's just such a great way to share what's going on. And I think, I think that Pam did seem quite enthused about doing a voice note for me, and I get that. I get that she perhaps wanted to give me a record and have a record of what's gone on and for other people to hear that too and just to be heard sometimes, I think, is what is really important and what can feel really good. So thank you so much, Pam, for sharing that story with everyone. I look forward to seeing you on the Heath soon and Carolyn. And thank you guys for listening today. It's been lovely chatting to you all and I hope you have a good rest of the week. Bye.